Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. Amen. I want to ask a question that might be going through your mind or something that is quite frankly something that you've gone through your mind but it's never been asked and or broken down. You, the Christian that's hearing my voice right now, who has a heart to tell people about Jesus, the question is this, how do you convince someone that Jesus is the answer to all their problems without offending them? It's kind of a hard thing. I mean, it seems like a hard task. It's not impossible because the thing that each person in this room has had in common before you ever heard the name of Jesus, before you ever heard the gospel news, each of us have something in common. Well, quite frankly, each of us had a strong belief in something. And for some of you, maybe it's like, I grew up in an agnostic home. I grew up in an atheist home. I grew up in a home where you die and you're put in the ground and that's it. Nothing happens after you die. And then all of a sudden you hear the gospel and you're confronted with something that you emotionally and philosophically attached yourself to. And all of a sudden either the gospel is true or it's not. Either Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life or he's not. But everything you ever believed in is confronted in that moment. And so for the Christian in here hearing my voice, and you want to make every effort to convince that brother or sister, uh, that, that friend, that, that coworker, that Jesus is the answer. If your tactic is to go to point out the fallacies in their life, if you're not careful, you may very well push them away. Because the truth be told, what you're trying to do, you're attempting to convince men and women to abandon everything they believed in pre-Christ in order to now passionately attach themselves to the gospel message. So I ask the question again, how do you convince someone that Jesus is the answer to all their problems without offending them? You ready for the answer? You can't. You just can't. The gospel is offensive. And can I just say we're living in a time where this heightened sensitivity of everyone is offended by everything everything, but certainly not people online. People online are never offended by anything. What do you mean you don't buy organic food for your family? I didn't know you don't love your children. What do you mean you don't watch Fixer Upper with Joanna Gaines? What do you mean you drink your coffee black? It's because I love Jesus. That's why I drink my coffee black. Everyone's offended by something. Everything offends everyone whether it's family drama, social media, work environment, environment, politics, guest speakers for Ed Taylor. We're offended by something. We're always offended by something. Even organic food falls into that category. But can I just say something? That the gospel message was offensive before being offended by everything was cool. It's true. But you understand why, though. The gospel is offensive because the cross offends the very person that again, attach themselves philosophically, passionately, and emotionally to, that all of a sudden now 
Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, or he's not. And it confronts you with follow Jesus with your life because he loves you and he's the answer. And now everything, your worldviews, is coming to a collision because of it. But can I say something, Christians, church? The gospel, although despite being offensive, we still need to speak the truth in love. Despite the gospel being offensive, we still need to be gracious with the men and women we come into contact with, that we're attempting and persuading to follow Jesus, that we're convincing them, you gotta follow Jesus. That's why I believe it's, all, it's unrealistic. It, it really is, it's unrealistic to assume we're just not gonna offend people when we're presenting the gospel, when we're talking about Jesus, quite frankly, because Paul talked about it in Corinthians. You remember that verse? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. A lot of you know this verse. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but the encouraging part, but to us who are being saved, everyone say it together, it is the power of God. The, the gospel is offensive, but it's far more powerful. The gospel is offensive, but it confronts us with our need for a savior, Jesus Christ. In the remaining verses of Ephesians, the text that we're going to cover, verses 15 through 23, Paul is going to try to convey to the church at Ephesus this richness they have in Christ, this ability to access this power at any moment because of Jesus Christ. And can I just say as a pastor, you know what's one of the hardest things? Sometimes it's more challenging convincing Christians, uh, basically the richness they have in Christ, it's harder to convince you the richness you have in Christ than it is to convince an unbeliever their need for Christ. You have an ability to access something that's not just Sunday mornings from the pastor at the pulpit. You can open up your word, leave this place, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you the spirit and the knowledge and revelation of his word. And you don't need a pastor. And that's what I'm hoping will happen this morning to show you that you can access it at any time just as Paul was trying to convey to the church at Ephesus. So let's begin in verse 15 and let's read verse 16 as well in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul the Apostle said, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. When Paul the Apostle wrote this little epistle, he was in prison. It's, an, it's a prison epistle. If you're wondering what this letter is, it's, it is that. He wrote it while in prison. He heard of the good news of what Timothy's leadership was doing in the church at Ephesus, but more specifically, he was hearing about the, the Ephesians' infectious love that they had. More specifically, if you see in verse 15, he noticed that their love was for all the saints. Man, they, it just, you could tell their, their love for one another, man. In fact, it reminds me, once upon a time, I used to do youth ministry. Like 15 years ago, we went to this youth conference at the Coliseum. And there was like 10 to 15,000 kids that would attend. And I remember we're in the Coliseum and half of the room, the kids are screaming, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love Jesus. How about you? And like the other side of the 7,500 other kids are screaming it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth the entire time until the speakers are like, ha ha, stop. And then they would begin the session. And I remember during the breakout sessions, these kids who were just screaming, we love Jesus, yes we do, we love Jesus, how about you? All of a sudden their true colors came out in the hallways when they saw each other. 
And it was not that of love. It was gossip and backbiting. Like, and I'm laughing because I'm looking at it like, you guys were just screaming your love for one another. It's like, we love Jesus. Yes, we do. We love that girl's wearing the same shirt as me. Tiffany, it looks so much better on you. I know, but I just, and it's just this backbiting weirdness. Like, and you know what? We're singing songs as a church. I'm going to sing in the middle of the storm. Louder and louder. You're going to hear my praises roar. You're giving this proclamation as a church together. And I, and I affirm that with you guys. Those, there's truth to that. But can I just say something? Evidence of God's work in us isn't on the basis of how we vocally describe our love for Jesus. Yes, it's important. But evidence of God doing a work in you is your love for each person you come into contact with. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you that you love one another as I have loved you. And by this, they'll know you're my disciples when you love one another as I have loved you. We can't just affirm it vocally. We have to affirm it with our life. Because for Paul, his point for writing the book of Ephesians was to convince those at Ephesus this great wealth they had in Jesus. And Paul wanted to remind them that they were, in a sense, spiritual trust fund kids. Each person in here, you identify with Jesus, you love Jesus, and you gave your life to him, well, guess what? You're a spiritual, you have a spiritual trust fund that you can access at any point, which reminds me of a character by the name of William Randolph Hearst. Have you guys heard of this guy? This man was known for his treasures by the art he collected. Uh, his fortune was by all of this amazing art. Well, he had heard that there was a piece of art that he just wanted, and he needed it. And so in his mind, I got to get this. He sent one of his agents abroad to find the treasure, and he was gone for months, and the agent came back to announce, I found the treasure, and it was located in William Randolph Hearst's warehouse where he kept all of his other treasures. He had no idea he had it in his possession the entire time. Guys, what Paul is trying to do in, in Ephesians chapter one is to help them understand they have this great spiritual wealth in their possession right now. The challenge is to convince them to access it, to get a hold of it, to use it. Paul heard of their faith in Jesus and their love for the saints in verse 15. He knew that they had more than just faith in God and love for Christians available in their accounts. He, he mentions them in, in the sense of I've been praying for you. He says in verse 16, I don't cease to give you thanks, making mention of you in my prayers. Don't you love interacting and bumping into people at church? And they're like, brother, I've been praying for you. Sister, I've been praying for you. Hey, the Lord put you in my heart. For some of you, it's like, why? Why, why, why would he do that? I'm not doing anything bad. Why was he praying for you? I'm so thankful for your pastor because he often sends me text messages random parts throughout the week. Hey, thinking about you, praying for you, John. How can I pray for you? You guys see a lot of the, the pastor from the pulpit, but you don't see a lot of the behind the scenes. And I just, can I just rich, say he richly blesses me. Marie richly blesses my wife, Carolyn. And it's the trickle-down effect. I know his infectious love, you guys see that, and you, and you want to do that with one another. Paul the Apostle was that. Remember Paul, he said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul is mentioning to the church at Ephesus, I, I don't cease to mention you. 
stop mentioning you in, in my prayers. He did that for all the letters he wrote to the church at Rome, Colossae, Philippi, Thessalonica, and so forth. He was this amazing preacher. I dare say even a greater teacher, but for me as a pastor, as I'm reading this, it teaches me that I can't just preach for y'all. I need to pray for you because I know your pastor does. I know he loves you guys deeply. He loves this church deeply. And so Paul reminds them in Ephesians, I don't cease to give thanks and make mention of you in my prayers. And now he's describing what? Well, how have you been praying for me, Paul? Look what he says in verse 17. He prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory may give, look what he wants to give us, that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Very simple point, you ready? Everyone listening, this isn't just subject to the church at Ephesus receiving this letter as Timothy is reading it aloud. You ready for the simple truth? Jesus wants to give you the spirit of revelation and knowledge. Jesus wants you to understand his word and he wants to reveal it through his Holy Spirit. And for a lot of you, that seems impossible. Like, but how? It's not as easy as you make it sound, John. It's not as easy as you make it sound. Well, you know what's interesting about James's little epistle in the Bible? He says in James 1.5, a lot of you know this verse, it says, if you need wisdom, or the new King James, if you lack wisdom, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you and he won't rebuke you for asking. And a lot of us hear that and, we're, and we think, but it's a sign of weakness to ask for help. Our pride literally gets hurt when we ask for help. I'm a weak person, weak people only ask for help, but can I just say, <laughs> and I'll say it on behalf of me and you guys can affirm it for yourself or not, but we need all the help we can get. We need all the help we can get. Life's too hard to do this thing called Christianity alone. We need to bear one another's burdens. We need the help of the Holy Spirit because it's just too hard on our own. We need help with our marriages. A lot of you, you need help with your marriage right now. You need help with understanding the word. You're opening it. It's not making sense and you're getting frustrated. We need help with communicating with one another, demonstrating good work ethics, being a light to the world. We need help left and right. And you know what the Bible says? Well, the reason why you have not, it's because you ask not. You have not because you ask not. And that's what I love the end of James, that little epistle that I just read from James 1.5, that if you lack wisdom, ask of God. And the end of the verse says, and he won't rebuke you for asking. I want to speak to the parents in the room really quick, okay? Really quick. Also, thank you for inviting me here because Carolyn and I, my wife and I are celebrating 15 years of marriage. I've known her for 24 years and we have a 10-year-old girl, an 8-year-old girl, and soon to be 6-year-old girl. And I love that woman to death. And I'm so glad that I was invited to come here uh, like a, 12 days before our anniversary. But I want to speak to the parents in here right now with kids. I know I don't look like I'm old enough to do any of those things that I just mentioned, but here we are. What I love to do when I go to the store and never ceases to amaze me is that my children still have this reoccurring question in the store, whether we're in Target or anywhere. Dad, can I buy something? Oh, you're going to buy something? I mean, can you buy me something? And as much as I want to buy them stuff that literally is going to break within the hour that we purchase it, it's only a dollar. Yeah, there's a reason why it's only a dollar. Oftentimes, I have to tell my children, no, I'm sorry not today. And a lot of times, parents, you know your kids, sometimes that's not sufficient for them. Then all of a sudden it turns into this like hostage negotiation. And my kids, like my oldest daughter will be like, listen, dad, I know you said no, but if you don't buy me something, I'm going to hide Madison, my sister, in the store somewhere where you'll never find her. 
you know what? I, I, I have to often rebuke my girls because they ask all the time. And it's just, there's not a good time to ask. I get it, but there are times I have to rebuke them for asking so much. With Jesus, he never rebukes us for asking for things, ever. It's not like when we come to Jesus, and we're like, hey, Jesus, and he's like, what? <laughs> I mean, what? No, we come to Jesus, Jesus, I need wisdom, and he's going to say yes, and I'm glad you finally asked me because I'm the only one that can supply you with it. I'm the only one that can show you my will for your life, and I'm finally glad you're asking. Jesus will not rebuke you for asking for wisdom. And so when you read here in Ephesians chapter one, as Paul's mentioning them in prayers, and he says that, the, that he may give to you the spirit of wisdom, it's because God wants you to understand his will for your life. That if you lack wisdom, the Bible says, ask of it and God will give it to you graciously and he won't rebuke you for asking. That's why, again, it's funny to me. We just, we hate asking for things though. We hate asking for help because it's a sign of weakness. And yet, you know what's another name for the Holy Spirit? The helper. He's our helper. That's why I like to read verse 17 like this. That he may give to you the helper of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That's why Solomon said in Proverbs 9.10, Fear of the Lord is the foundation of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One results in good judgment. Now, when Solomon wrote that, because maybe a lot of you hear that in church a lot, like, I don't understand this fear of the Lord thing is the beginning of wisdom. It's not like a shaking in my boots fear. It's not like Jesus is going to pop out of nowhere fear, like, here I am, and it's like, oh, you know, kind of fear. It's a reverential awe fear. It's a reverence that you're before the creator, the magnificent, perfect, holy one called Jesus. We're singing songs. I can hear your voices. By the way, you guys sing very well. Even with the mask over your mouth, you sing very well. And I can hear the brokenness in a lot of your voices. You just have this sense of, I am worshiping the one who saved me. I am worshiping the king of kings. And I am worshiping the very God of the universe. There's that reverence. That's the reverential awe that I'm talking about. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It means you have a, a healthy biblical fear. That's what it means. And in this case, once you seek this knowledge that Paul wants us to access in Ephesians 1 and this spirit of revelation, well, you have to have that the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of that wisdom. But Paul didn't want them just to have revelation and knowledge in their spiritual accounts. Because again, you're a follower of Jesus. You're a spiritual trust fund kid. You have the spirit of knowledge. And not only that, look at verse 18. So that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of your calling, what is the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Paul wanted them to understand that all God had given them in Jesus Christ. More specifically, if you want to understand the supernatural work by the end of service and you're going to walk out of here and either remember most of what I said or not, it's this one thing. If you want to access the spiritual knowledge and revelation, then your eyes, as he put it, the eyes of your understanding will be enlightened. They're opened. Have you ever had that moment, that aha moment when your eyes are open and it's like, I get it. And the spirit kind of reveals to you, yes, because I'm showing you the goodness of who I am. And then it's the aha moment because you know the hope of your calling now. Not only that, but you know the riches of his inheritance. 
And for a lot of you, it's hard to know what even hope is because how you define hope, how you measure hope. And yes, you can look online and look up Webster's Dictionary, define hope, and it will say something like the feeling that, that what is wanted can be had or the events that turn out for the best. And it's like, okay, that sounds about right. But the problem is, for a lot of you, your hope is defined as your security. And is it safe to say that we put our hope and security in a lot of areas that fail us? We put our hope and security in the media. <laughs> Sorry about that. We put our hope and security in our finances, in politics, in your sexuality, in your job title, in your bank account. And we look at all of these things, but what happens when the very thing that you define as hope and security, those things, and the list goes on and on, what happens when they fail you? For a lot of you, it leaves you completely depraved and hopeless. What is the point to live? And King David, the king of Israel, put it best to understand what hope really was. Listen to this, Psalm 16, 9. He said, therefore, my heart is glad. My glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. King David doesn't say, my flesh will rest in the hopes that things work out. Hopefully, big difference. David recognized God is hope. He is the hope of his salvation. And church, when you place your hope in anything but Jesus, you're gonna be disappointed every time. And for Paul, he's praying to the church at Ephesus that their eyes would open to know the hope of his calling. And God knows what this hope is. And here's the encouraging thing. He wants us to see it. Oh, church, he wants you to see the hope of this calling. Very much so, I, a lot of you know this verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know, the prophet says, the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not evil. Look at this last part. To give you a future and a hope. And that's exactly right. Is it safe to say that people feel most hopeless when they don't know the outcome? Right now, especially, a lot of us are wondering what the outcome of this election is going to be, what the outcome of this coronavirus is going to be, what the outcome of your job. Like, we all look into the future, but with anxiety sometimes, like, I don't know what's going to happen, and it's terrifying me. And for some of you, you even in this moment feel hopeless because you're looking at your marriage and you're like, I don't know what's going to happen next with it. My marriage is struggling. Your finances are depleting because of this inability to manage them well, You're, this uncertainty of your health. For some of you, you it's like, I'm hopeless because I don't even know what happens when we die. What happens after we die? And maybe for a lot of you, whatever the case is, you're looking in all these areas to determine, is this going to give me hope? No, it's not. Is this going to give me hope? That's not doing it. Is this going to give me hope? And you're looking everywhere. And here's Jesus waving his hand saying, hey, I know what you need. I have a plan. And, I, and this plan, it's a good one. And it's a plan for a hope for your future. And I want to show you. And it's in those hard moments that we say, okay, Lord, search into my heart, find any fault within me because I want to know it. I want to know the hope of this calling. And I know there are those of you in here that want to know this hope of the calling in your life. You desperately want to have what Paul prayed, this revelation and knowledge in Christ. And I know, I can see, I can see it, guys. You want to know what the hope of your calling is and you want to know how to access this revelation in God. And it's like, well, sh tell me, John. Well, then you need to access the power that's in your account. 
Look what Paul says in verse 19 back in Ephesians 1. We need to know his power. He says, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power? So here's Paul trying to help them understand those in Ephesus. Hey, you have access in your spiritual bank account, the greatness of his power and the working of his mighty power. And yes, a lot of you, as you've identified with Jesus, the book of Ephesians talks about this seal that's on our life, this approval, if you will. Like when we give our life to the Lord, we belong to Jesus now. We're property of the most high, Jesus Christ. And, you know, for, for Paul, when he wrote that the inheritance that's in the saints, it's this idea that when you die and you come before the Lord, the Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that's great. That is an amazing thing that we have to look forward to in this, this aftermath inheritance. But right now, you're going to leave this room and you're going to be brought with the thought of, okay, but what do I have now? And Paul, what he's trying to tell him is you have a power that is accessed through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and it exists so that the whole world can see it. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven as a result. This is the power that Paul wants them to access through the Holy Spirit. Think about it from a timeline. Jesus dies and he rises from the grave and the gospels kind of end. But then the book of Acts begins and now you have the disciples who are like, this is it. He's gonna set up his earthly kingdom. The oppressiveness of the Roman government is gone because Jesus is in charge. They assumed that was the time. And I love that. They look at Jesus and they're like, is this it? Is this the time you're going to set up your earthly kingdom? And I love Jesus's response in Acts 1-7. Listen to this. Jesus said to them in response, is this the time? He said, the Father alone has authority to set those dates and times, and they're not for you to know. <laughs> Come on, how disappointing is that for as a disciple? Because the disciples, they're just like, this is the greatest. Jesus rose from the grave. This is it. And then for Jesus to say, it's actually not for you to know the times and the seasons when I come back. And I could just imagine the disciples like, we know it's not for us to know, but if you tell us, we promise not to tell anyone. <laughs> your kids do that. Parents, you do that to your kids. What are we doing in five minutes from now? It's like, oh, it's, I'll let you know when it happens. And for the disciples, that's just got to be a, a bummer. It's not for you to know the time when I establish my earthly kingdom. Because don't forget, people feel most hopeless when they don't know the outcome of the future. That's hard. That's hard to wrap your mind around. So even though the disciples don't know the outcome of the exact dates of when Jesus is going to set up his earthly kingdom, he doesn't leave it there. He doesn't just say, it's not for you to know the time of the season, and then he ascends into heaven. You know what he says in verse 8 after that? Listen to this, Acts 1.8. Jesus said to the disciples, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you'll be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So even though you don't know the day or the hour of when I'm going to set up my earthly kingdom, what you do know and can know is when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses and you're going to go into the world and represent me. That was the best thing they could ever know the power of the Holy Spirit allowing them to be witnesses, telling everyone about them, about Jesus, making disciples. And even though they offended people in the process, it still didn't negate the fact 
that they needed to take initiative because Jesus commissioned it. I get a lot of you are offended and frustrated in this season that we are forever wanting to erase from history called COVID-19. I get it. But can I just say something as frustrated as you might be, and I'm with you there, it still doesn't negate the fact that we have been given the great commission and we have a task before us, amen? We still have a responsibility to tell people that despite the world issues that we're facing, Jesus is still the same yesterday, today, and forever. The fact of the matter is that nothing has changed in terms of this great initiative that we have. And the fact of the matter is not just for the church at Ephesus, because I want you to see who can access this power in verse 19. Paul says, it's for us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. This power is available to any person that has given their life to Jesus, and therefore you have access to the power. But there's a catch, because there always is. There's no way that you're going to be able to exhibit this power in your life if you never access it. And ladies and gentlemen, this is no ordinary power. I want you to see how Paul describes this power in verse 20. Read it with me. The power is described. The greatness of this power in verse 20 is which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Let this bake your noodle for a second. You ready? The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, you have access to. The same power that, you know, as we're singing songs, death is defeated. The king is alive. It's the Holy Spirit. You have access to it even right now. And for a lot of you, maybe you don't fully grasp that, even in, whether you don't believe it or you just don't care. Let me put it this way. Let's assume I told you, hey guys, I'm a very talented pastor that can hack into every person's account here. And by the way, I've deposited $1 million into three of your accounts in this room right now. Every person will be like, ha ha, but maybe he's not joking. And every one of you just start frantically looking at your phones, ripping your masks off and be like, it doesn't matter anymore. Maybe you wouldn't do that. Maybe Ed would be like, brother, sister, that's not good. No be a witness. Sorry. Anyways, let's, back to the illustration. Let's say I put that money in your account. Every, every person would be looking right now. And here's the thing, what Paul is trying to convey to the church at Ephesus. It's not just a select few. Every single one of you has access to the same thing that raised our Savior from the dead. And so the issue is they believe it or they don't believe it. And I want you to see the source of this power is greater than any authority you could ever know. Look at verse 21 with me. Paul says, it's far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not in only in this age, but also in that which is to come. Let me put it in perspective. There's no authority or power by man or anything in the spiritual realm or any name for that matter that is greater than the name of Jesus Christ. Christ. That's why Peter said in Acts 4.12, there, there is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. No one can save you, ladies and gentlemen, except Jesus Christ. No one can solve and fix all of your problems except Jesus Christ. 
And I know that may sound, that's easy for you to say, John. It's even offensive that you're even lumping him into this category that he's going to fix everything because he can. Because he's the source of our joy that when we were hopeless, now we're with hope. And when we were mad, now we're finding love again for one another. And when you felt like life was pointless, he brought, again, meaning to our life. He can solve everything. And I love that Peter doesn't just say that he's a way. He's the only way. He is the only way to salvation. And that even in and of itself is an offensive com- a comment. But offended or not, it's true. My mom is a breast cancer survivor twice. Over the last 15 years, she has been cancer-free. But the first time we heard the news as a family, and everyone, you're going to go back in time to this moment that I'm, when the doctor says, you've got cancer. How that shook our family. And then when we thought we beat it and then it came back a second time, it shook our family again. It was literally the worst thing you could ever hear to say, I'm sorry to say this, but you have cancer. And I'm proud to say, and I'm so thankful to God to say that she has been cancer-free all these years, but I can't imagine if the doctor decided all of a sudden, but I'm not going to tell him. What if I offended them? What if I ruined their day? What if I ruined their life with this, this, sing, this singular message that you have cancer? The issue with sin isn't so much that it's, you know, the Bible says sin is pleasurable, but only for a season. And it's not even so much that the gospel is offensive because of any other reason except we love sin so much. So even though you don't want, for some of you, you don't want to hear me repeatedly say over and over again, the gospel is the answer, Jesus is the answer, that in and of itself is offensive, it doesn't negate the fact that you still need to hear it because he loves you so much. And it's because he loves you that the issue of sin has to be dealt with, and he dealt with it at the cross. There is salvation in no one else except Jesus Christ alone. And I hope you're beginning to see why Paul is trying to tell the church at Ephesus to understand this great wealth and power that they had in Jesus Christ. And he didn't want them to have artificial power in the same way we don't. Remember what Paul told uh, Timothy, his young protege and Padawan? Yes, I made that reference. He once told them that there would be men and women who would have a form of godliness but deny its power. And the warning for us when we read that is that if we as a church ever attempt to minister to one another apart from the power of God, it is then that we're going to be lumped into this category to have a form of godliness but deny its power. And maybe for some of you, that's what you're dealing with now. Maybe for some of you, you're functioning like this. You're like, I'm dry in my Christianity. I feel like every attempt that I give is just, it's for nothing. It's not, I don't find joy in it anymore. Well, perhaps you're attempting to look godly, but you're not accessing the power that is available to you, that is only found through Christ Jesus in order for you to do the things that he has called you to do. It can't be on your own. It can't be on your own strength. And quite frankly, I think many people may have a form of godliness but deny its power because they refuse to believe that God's word has any power or authority to tell them what to do. And maybe that's where you're, some of your issues that you're struggling and wrestling with. Well, John, there are certain parts of the Bible that really wrestle with my worldviews. Well, John, there are certain parts of the Bible that I disagree with because it, 
doesn't, you know, align with who I am philosophically. But that's why the Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. All, not some, all. And maybe the, perhaps the wrestling you're dealing with isn't on the basis of what you agree with or disagree with with the Bible, but because you be- refuse to believe that the whole Bible has any authority and power over your life. I asked at the very beginning of the sermon, how do you convince someone that Jesus is the answer to their problems without offending them? And for a lot of churches, they're not even, they're like, we've solved the problem. In fact, what we're going to do is we're going to eliminate the word. We're going to use persuasive words. We're not even going to teach the Bible anymore. We're going to do self-help sermons. And that's why, can I just say how, that's why I love your pastor so much, because he loves the word so much to the point that it causes me to want to teach the word every single week. Well, we don't want to be offensive, so we don't want to teach the Bible. Wow. Well, you're in the wrong business. And for Paul, he once said that, 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2 and 4 and 5. And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellent of speech of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power. Verse 5, afterwards, we should all say amen to this, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. You want to know why that's true? Because if you're coming to church just to hear a particular speaker, or you're coming to church for a particular leader, or you're listening, you know, whatever it is, and we give honor where honors due. But if you're coming to church for that one particular reason, you're going to be disappointed because that leader is going to fail you. But the power of God will not ever. And I love your pastor, Ed. And by the way, this is something that I share with my church. If you're coming to church just for me, you're going to be disappointed. But if you're coming to church because you know and believe that the power of God is the only thing that's going to impart this truth through the Holy Spirit, you're never going to be disappointed. You're going to find joy again. And I get it, especially for some of you who are like, I can't wait when Ed's here next week. Is he here next week? I don't know his schedule. I don't know his schedule. I was just invited. But what I do know is that you can expect to hear from the Lord from the pulpit because he filters through that. The real conflict becomes when we have to admit that Jesus is in charge of everything in our life. And how do I know Jesus is in charge? Look at verse 22. He put all things under his feet. He gave him to be head over all things to the church. So that means all power is accessible through Jesus Christ and only Jesus. Why? Because he's the head over all things to the church, as it says in verse 22. Jesus is in charge. I'm not. The leaders are not. Jesus is. The text says he put all things under his feet, meaning the power of the resurrection placed Jesus above all things, and therefore all things are under his feet and authority. And it sets Jesus as the head honcho of the church. And if Jesus is the head of the church, what does that make the church? Look at verse 23. Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. We are the body of Christ. And if we are the body, while he's off reaching. It's a terrible song, by the way. Some of you are offended because you're like, I actually like that song. I'm sorry if that offended you. Pastor Ed told me if Ian ever plays that song, he's like, I'm going to let him go. It's all right. He'll be fine. God's grace will go with him. It will be all right. Okay, so that's the last one, I promise. Let's move on. We are the body. 
we're the hands that does his work. We're the feet that runs his errands. We're the voice that shares the truth of who he is. And can I just say, church, I know that every one of you is gifted in some capacity. And this church, Calvary Church here in Aurora, is going to function at its peak and the highest when you're exercising the gift God's given you. When you can come in and say, this is who I am, this is how God created me, and I want to offer something to this church, this place will be an unstoppable force for the gospel. Not just when Pastor Ed is teaching or the other pastors, but when you, the church, are functioning as the body and accomplishing the work of the Lord. That's why the church is an essential element for the powerful work of Jesus to be accomplished. He says in verse 23, his body, meaning the church, is the fullness of him who fills all in all, meaning Jesus bit by bit is filling all things in their proper places. And the act of filling in is being worked out by the church, the men and women hearing my voice right now. That's why I said earlier, if Jesus commissioned it, then we need to take initiative. The great commission is still before us even now, and then when he comes back, and I got to say it, Jesus is coming back. He's going to come back, and we have a responsibility before us. We need to take initiative by accessing this power that's in our account that is only found through the Holy Spirit. But what happens when we offend people, John? I want to invite the worship team to come up and finish with this final thought. I get the gospel is offensive. But can I just say, church, it's more powerful than it is offensive. And we need to hear it. And how do you convince someone, though, John, that Jesus is the answer to their problems without offending them? And you can't. Because the cross is going to confront them with who they were before Christ. And that's what repent means. It means changing the way you think. And for a lot of you, you thought of Jesus differently. You thought he was just a teacher and that's it. And all of a sudden, you're confronted with, no, he's the savior of the world. He loves me. He died for me. And now you're changing the way you think, the way you lived your life for yourself, and you're now living for Jesus. But there had to be that initial confrontation. And you were worth it because he died for you. And while we were still yet sinners, the Bible says he's still going to die for the ungodly. And I don't want to be, guys, I don't want to offend people just for the shock factor. I want to be a light to a dark world and recognize that the darkness resists the light. And I truly desire to want to be used. But I know the only way God can use me individually, faithfully starting in my home, is I have to access this power and wisdom and this revelation and knowledge that is only going to be found through the Holy Spirit. And he's got to be the one to guide everything. And that is why, ladies and gentlemen, offended or not, people need Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's come before the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you as we're about to partake in communion and we're going to prep our hearts even for communion. What a beautiful thing it is. What a gruesome thing it seems like to some, for, but, but for, to us who are being saved, it's the, very, it's the power of God. We recognize that we are who we are because of the cross. So Heavenly Father, I just pray that you would give us discernment as we're interacting with the family members and co-workers, that we would be a light, that we would represent them. We don't want to be annoying for Christ. We want to be used for Christ. Heavenly Father, I just pray for every human being in, my, in this room hearing my voice, that would you empower them with the very thing Paul showed us that we have access to, the greatness and the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. 
that we too would understand the revelation, the knowledge of the Spirit found only through Him. And Lord, for any person in here who may not have a relationship with you, Lord, would you stir in their hearts in this moment? And maybe that is you. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. And the very Judeo-Christian approach has been offensive to you. It's narrow-minded to you. You've hated it. And maybe right now the Holy Spirit's tugging on your heart and showing you that Jesus is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. That he died for you because he loves you and wants you to have a relationship with him. So that you too, as the Bible declares, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And you have a future inheritance and promise in Jesus. That can only be found in Jesus. And maybe now is that moment that you're like, I'm ready to give my life to Jesus. And if that's you, just repeat after me. Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I want to give you my life. I want to surrender everything to you. Thank you for dying for me and rising from the dead three days later. My life now belongs to you. Use me for your glory, Jesus. I'm yours. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's worship the Lord together. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.